we get into the teaching this morning, um, you know, we are a word-based church. We preach through the Bible. We're preaching through the Gospel of John currently. But I really want to teach you guys how to listen to sermons. Sermons are to be listened to interactively with the Holy Spirit. Sermons are not just here for you to take in some information so that you can get really smart, although I hope to help you do that, although I'm not that smart, so I don't know how much I can help you do that, Um, but you are to interact with the Holy Spirit. So as Shua was saying, it's really good for you to have something to write down notes on, and maybe there'll be a key phrase, or maybe there'll be a word, or maybe there'll be a scripture, or maybe something will be given to you in a weightiness in a moment. Write those things down. Interact with the Holy Spirit as you listen to the sermon, as if you were having a conversation with God. And here at the end, Shua is actually going to be wrapping us up this morning, taking us to communion and leading us in times of prayer where we can really interact and pray through what we were given by the Holy Spirit in the midst of the teaching this morning. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you now to be the one who communes with us, the one who teaches us, Father, some of us carry this morning in our bodies anxiety, shame, guilt, fear, anticipation, uncertainty. There's regret from last week. There's concern about next week. But you have given us this precious precious moment, this moment to be still, to listen, to receive, to be encouraged, to be guided by the words of your holy scriptures. And I am praying for us as a church plant. I'm praying for us as a church, a tiny little sliver of your church, the church, Lord, universal, that we would be a spearhead of renewal, us and this family of churches that we're a part of, Park Hill and up and down the West Coast, this family of churches, Father, who we are laboring and praying to be the people of God anew and afresh for the sake of our city, for the sake of our neighbors. But settle the hearts this morning. Let not a single moment be missed in the next 25, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Let there be an intensity of focus, an aching, a longing, an openness of posture to whatever you may present to us. And Spirit, we now give you this gathering. We now give you the entirety of ourselves. If you don't want the sermon to be preached, we won't preach it. If you don't want us to sing more songs, we won't sing more songs. If you want us to pray, we'll pray. If you want us to listen intently to your words, we'll do that. Just guide us now, Spirit. We give ourselves to you completely. And I personally pray that you would shape a radically committed community of believers for these days that we live in, not just only for our well-being, but for the sake of our city and our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. I have been on a bit of an A.W. Tozer binge lately. He was a pastor of a generation gone by, late 50s, early 60s. And most of his writings actually are so prophetic in tone, and they speak directly to who we are today as a church. He said this, If any church is a real church, it is a communion, not an institution merely organized and established. Anybody can set up a church, get a pastor, elect a board, But unless that institution is also a communion, it is not a New Testament church. A New Testament church must be a people, a company of people, drawn together with the fascination and the desire to seek God, to feel God, to hear God, and to be where God is. I love Tozer's language. The church is a communion. That is a common 
union. There's a common unity that creates Christian community, and it is our pursuit of God's presence together as his body and our allegiance to Jesus. That is what unifies us. That is what makes us one. That is what solidifies us as the family of God. Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17, that all of them, speaking of you and I today, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. God's solution to the division and the hostility and the chaos that we see in our current cultural moment is us. Us. (laughs) The Holy Spirit animated communion of God's people seeking his presence together is the answer to the plight of this world. God created humanity to be a unified family in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God created a human family to go forth into the world and harmoniously, that is, as one, multiply and cultivate beauty and culture and art and music and shrubbery and whatever else may be, technology. And we were to go and do that in partnership with each other perfectly and in partnership with God himself. Satan, the snake in the grass and in the garden, he deceived Adam and Eve. And sin splintered humanity as our ancestors, the first humans, they chose for themselves what they believed would give them the good life instead of trusting God's wisdom and God's ways and God's words about what would truly give them the good life. And so what we see in our daily news feeds is the human family continuing to fracture across the fault lines of every individual doing what they think is right in their own eyes rather than doing what God considers right in his eyes. And so Jesus's mission was so much more than just accomplishing our personal forgiveness as individuals, although that is part of it and very important. But God in Jesus is recreating and reuniting, harmoniously bringing together a new humanity through the cross and forgiveness, through the resurrection and eternal life, and through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Paul explained to the Ephesians, God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two or out of the millions of individuals that exist in this world. God's intent was to make peace and in one body to reconcile both of them, all of them, to himself through the cross by which he put to death all of the hostility. The Father right now today is bringing to completion what Jesus prayed for. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is being done through you and I. And friends, you need to understand that what you and I are longing for, oftentimes we don't even realize what we need the most, is each other. For our well-being and for the well-being of our society to come about in full, there must be this radical reorientation of our lives a radical commitment to community, one with another, and that is the partial fulfillment of God's mission in beginning to reunite humanity in the church. And so, as I said, for the rest of January, we're going to be talking about, for the next three weeks, the necessity of our presence, one with another, in Christian community. 
Community is so much more than just a small group that we go to on Wednesday night where we study a book or where we have food together. Community has eternal value. It is of infinite importance. And radically committed Christian community is really the pathway to becoming fully human, to walking in the newness of this humanity that God has given us by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And this radical commitment to community is the hope for the world around us. And so as we make this call to radical Christian community for all of us, we cannot forget This is where I'm going to spend a little bit of time. We cannot forget that Satan, the snake in the grass, the serpent in the garden, he is still doing everything he can to divide you from each other, to divide the church, to divide and destroy humanity. This is why the New Testament authors warned us to be watchful. Paul commanded the Galatians, watch yourselves lest you also be tempted. The old King James sometimes still pops up in my brain for some reason. Peter pleaded with his community in 1 Peter chapter 5, be alert, be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so Satan, he is still tempting all of us, the church, with these false ideas about what will lead us to the good life. He's lying to us. And if we're going to be the community that heals and gives hope, the community of new humanity that God intends us to be, we have to be aware of and watchful of the tactics of this enemy. In our current cultural moment, we're going to dial in the focus now, there are two glaring satanic forces that are constantly trying to corrupt the church constantly trying to corrupt our understanding of community. Radical individualism and hostile tribalism. These two glaring satanic forces are resisting what God wants to do in the world. Radical individualism and hostile tribalism. Let's talk about individualism here just for a moment. Individualism distilled down is a philosophy of life. It's a worldview that champions the individual, individuality as the highest good. In contrast to other ways of seeing the world and other societies where the greatest good is actually defined by obeying the dictates and the desires of the collective humanity around you, like in honor-shame cultures. You do what the great-grandparents and the parents and the grandparents and the aunties and the uncles and the authorities of your community want you to do, and that's where joy is found. But in individualism, that is abandoned for what will bring me the greatest joy as I personally define it. Individualism, understand, has actually done tremendously good things for human society. The foundation of our liberal democracy here in the United States is actually rooted in individualism. The idea of each individual having a set of rights that should be honored and fought for. This is what led to the civil rights movements, MLK Weekend because of this, this notion of individualism, beautiful. Women's rights, the suffrage movements, the ongoing conversation right now in our culture on seeing the disadvantaged and working towards their advantage because all are given equal rights under and in God's creation. That notion is beautiful, and it has the Bible's fingerprints all over it. We don't want to diminish that. 
but radical individualism, this commitment to an individual pursuit of joy and pleasure, it has a very dark side. This radical individualism, what it does is it essentially promises us that only when we are totally autonomous, that is free from any sort of authority over us, parents, pastors, professors, institutions, only once we are free from these things, free from their ideals, their definitions, their values, freed from the received norms, progressing, to use that word, progressing past all of those archaic norms, then and only then will we finally flourish. Radical individualism actually says that flourishing is by self-defining. We decide who we are, what we are, and what we want to do apart from anybody else, any other influence, parents, pastors, friends, family, grandparents, social institutions, the church. So individualism, this radical individualism, it fails to see all of the human family as an interconnected and interdependent system. And this is, of course, the absolute opposite way that God created humans. We were created to live under his absolute authority. We were created not to self-define, but to receive our identity from him. We were created to interdepend on one another as one unit. And so as personal rights to liberty has evolved into this radical individualism, it is now the dominant view here in the West. It's what we swim in. It's our cultural norm. It's, it's the air we breathe. And what it has brought about is this mass exodus from the traditional institutions that our society was once held together by. Things like marriage and the family, things like neighborhood connections, things like social clubs, things like the church. This radical individualism destroys Christian community and it corrupts Christians by turning us inward on ourselves instead of outward to the world around us. Let me just give you guys a really general example to make clear how this affects all of us. And this is not condemning because this affects me just as much as it affects anybody else. This individualism, how it saturates our brains as Christians. When we read the Bible, we tend to read the Bible in the context of what is God saying to me and my personal desires? Am I, am I the only one that reads the Bible that way? Just raise your hands right now. Please, somebody sit in solidarity with me. Do you read the Bible as if it's written only to you and nobody else? Yeah, I know I do. But the authors of the New Testament, they didn't speak in individual terms. They spoke in collective terms. So when we read you in the Bible, we're actually reading you plural, not you singular. Let me give you some of your favorite verses and completely wreck them for you. Philippians chapter, ver chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, and we all go, yes, deep in my heart, just me, little me, right here in my chair with my cup of coffee and my soft light, God is going to finish the work he completed in me. But that you in the Greek is y'all. It's very Texas. It's very plural. The work that God is going to finish in you is you in the midst of a whole bunch of other yous. And if it's just singular you, God isn't doing the work. That's, that's paradigm shifting for us because of how individualism has wrecked our reading of the Bible. My favorite verse, my, my life verse, as they call them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For, and I've never noticed this until I was meditating on this a number of years ago. For we, plural, are God's handiwork. We, we, I've always, I've read that verse for years. Ah, I'm God's poema, so beautiful, <laughs> so unique, this little snowflake. <laughs> we, 
I am who I am because of you. You are who you are because of me. We together are poema, beautiful. We are not singular lyrics. Songs are not written by one lyric alone. Songs are made up of multiple lyrics, multiple rhymes, multiple beats and grooves, tones, harmonies. It all has to come together to become this thing called God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which were prepared in advance for us, for us to do. The New Testament simply does not have category for these singular Christian ideals of doing God's will alone and following Jesus apart from a whole other group that is deeply following Jesus. The New Testament community exists for each other, and we must think in terms of each other. And so our personal desires and dreams, they are not the New Testament personal desires and dreams if they are separated from the family of God. Radical paradigm shift. And this individualism, that pervades our culture, it corrupts a people who are called to cross-carry and to sacrificially serve, and it ever so subtly transforms us into consumers, where we're merely shopping for what will provide our felt needs most effectively. And so our joy as Christians, because of radical individualism, is no longer rooted in bringing joy to the other that God has sent us to, but how will the other bring joy to me and enhance my life? And it is a recipe for depression and disappointment. Because when you have an entire community gathering, expecting that the rest of the community is going to orbit around the solar system of their personal desires, and then they don't, well, it just leaves that community in bitter cynicism, and that becomes the norm. And that's why we see so much deconstruction in the church right now. Because we've been sold this bill of goods that your personal dreams are what God is all about, apart from everybody else. And then everybody else doesn't meet your personal dreams. And we get angry at the church, and we're out. But God is doing a work. I'm convinced of it. I'm absolutely persuaded of it. What radical individualism does is it eats away at our commitments. We are terrified of commitments. <laughs> because commitments might mean that we're bound to something that limits our pursuit of personal freedom or personal comfort. It means that if I commit to something, I'm going to be bound to something that limits me, my ability to pursue what I want to pursue whenever I want to pursue it. Radical individualism it results in this general sense of complete meaninglessness. Because if one's life, if the end of one's life is only themselves, that means that we are living against the very grain of love. Love, by definition, has the other in mind. And we were created to be loved and to love. Radical individualism has no category for such others-centered thinking. Loneliness, the ramping up of loneliness that we have seen statistically in our culture... You want to know why that's happening? It's because we are alone. We are alone. We are charting our own course, choosing our own path in the name of freedom and autonomy, and we are depressed out of our minds. Anxiety is increasing because radical individualism demands that we cut ourselves off from the traditional sources of security and authority, things like mom and dad, deep family ties and connection, deep friendships where we're held accountable, where we're guided and influenced by people that actually can shape the fingerprints of themselves on our souls. We abandon the societal norms and authorities and things like the church that once were a solace, a place of safety and hope, have to be abandoned because of the, the rigors and the dictates of that collective community. They deny me my ability to do what I want. So of course we're terrified. We're alone. We have no stability around us. And ironically, ironically, number two, 
This radical individualism, this is what has created this second kind of glaring force right now that is corrupting and polluting Christian community. This is, I pray, not going to be offensive to any of us. I want to talk forthrightly and frankly right now about this hostile tribalism that is corrupting the church. I have deep convictions on this and many thoughts on this. Because we are hardwired to be together, humans form groups with other individuals that are like-minded and that have like desires. So we may tout, I'm committed to individualism. I will let no authority, no group tell me who I am. By the way, it was a group that told you that nobody can tell you what to do. And so we are committed to our individualism, but we always end up in community. We cannot not be in community. We were created by a dancing, eternal community God of love. Therefore, all we can do is be together. We are hard biologically, physiologically, theologically, spiritually, emotionally, everything. We are wired for each other. We cannot not be together. So what happens is self-defined individuals naturally coalesce with other self-defined individuals that sit in the same space as them, and they form a tribe. These tribes form around innocuous things like Mac or PC people, long borders or short borders here in San Diego. That's a really big deal, I found out. Sports teams is a big deal. Essential oils. I mean, lots of tribes around essential oils. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. All the way to all the way to the tribal weightier matters of politics, ethnicity, sexuality, gender, and religious belief. Now, you have all these differing tribes, and they begin to come into contact with one another, and some of their ideals and values conflict with one another, and hostility starts. No matter how cordial we are on the surface, brewing under that smiley face is an anger, and a disrespect, and a fear. At the root of genocide and racism and sexism and war is this extreme hostile tribalism unleashed. And what we are seeing right now in the midst of our political upheavals, left and right, is we are seeing the rival tribal convictions and voices and figureheads and followers, we're seeing them ramp up their wars against one another. And this hostile tribalism can corrupt God's church. It can pollute God's community. And this is how. Two temptations, two temptations in hostile tribalism that Satan offers a community. Two, what are they? One, he tempts the church to take control as the tribes are taking control by force. Or two, he tempts the church to abandon their convictions and compromise with the tribe that is in conflict with the church's convictions. Let me just flesh this out for us just a little bit. The first is to grasp for power or to do God's will in a way that God does not intend. Join that tribe. The second is to compromise the convictions that make us uniquely Christian to the tribal ideals in the name of love. Let's talk about compromise here for just a moment. On the temptation to compromise, what we have seen in the church, call, call these churches liberal or progressive or whatever you may call them, over time, the voices of the tribe that declared the Bible's sexual definitions and Jesus' sexual ethics do not align with a particular tribe's sexual ethics or understanding of human sexuality. 
And so over time, ever so slowly, in the name of acceptance, in the name of love, the church, or a progressive church, began to allow its theology, its understanding of humanity, its understanding of sexuality, to be shaped by the tribal convictions versus biblical Jesus-y convictions about what sexuality is. And so at some point, scriptures have to be redefined to fit the tribal points of self-defined truth. Rather than the community being formed by a devoted commitment to Jesus' sexual ethics while continuing to welcome all fully, wholeheartedly, with gentleness, kindness, mercy, love, patience, while recognizing the whole host of issues that I am wrestling with, all of those things in place, ever so slowly, some communities adopted the the convictions of the tribe. And so what was once considered against God's will is now adopted as God's will in the name of love. And the church in that moment has joined the tribe rather than the church rescuing humans from the tribe. Does that make sense? Is everybody tracking with that? On the grasp for power. This is on the right. So if that's on the left, if we see that on the left, kind of the the sexual ethic conversation going on and how the church is dealing with that, where the church begins to compromise and overcompromise and abandon the unique convictions that make us Christian. On the right, on the far right, what we see is we see this horrific grasp for power by force. What we see happening right now is that slowly over the decades, what started as something good, voices of particular political tribes speaking about how to bring the kingdom of earth or the kingdom of heaven to earth, these political tribes began to shape the thinking and the perspectives of certain communities in the church. And what began is some Christians trying to implement God's will through political strategy and legislation that evolved and evolved and evolved and a more radical commitment to the tribe's ideals and the tribe's way of doing things versus the way of Jesus doing things evolved and evolved and evolved. And it culminated just a couple weeks ago in tens and thousands of people storming the Capitol, bearing Christian flags and demanding that their figurehead remain in power. Members of that tribe stormed the capital, marked by rage, militant force, and cult of personality. The following Sunday, some of those members of that militantly raging, take-by-force community, that tribe, the following Sunday, some were in church saying that they pledged their allegiance to a king who said, pray for your enemy, love your enemy, and who allowed himself to be crucified by the empire. Do you see how subtle the serpent is in deforming the church? How dangerous this is. How compromised with with worldly tribes, it, it destroys Christian community. And how grasping for power and doing God's will in, in worldly tribal ways corrupts Christian community. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Because I realize this conversation that I'm having is macro. I realize that there are so many questions, so many details that have to be hashed out in small groups, in community, with love, with a commitment to each other, not dividing from each other, not trying to force upon somebody by our own power and exert our will upon them, but seeking Jesus's will in all of these conversations. I recognize in a 45-minute sermon that this is just a gigantic question bomb going off in the middle of us, which is why you got to get into a community to talk about these things. 
But do you see how dangerous this is? It calls for us to be an introspective people and humble and committed and vigilant. We have to discern what is forming our community. Is it compromise? Is it taking control? Is the scriptures truly the center of our community or is it social media and the voices of some of our friends? Is it the spirit of the tribal age that's forming our community and what we're committed to? Or is it the spirit of God? Is it, is it compromises of our purity, our holiness, in the name of love, or is truth in the name of love in the, in the epicenter of our community? These are hard questions, friends. Hard questions. But more than ever, the church has to wrestle with these things. You and I as individual Christians, we have to. We can't sweep this under the carpet any longer. God is renewing and calling a radically committed group of people to be the hope of the world. And Satan wants to tempt and divide and compromise and cause us to believe that we can take control of the world by force instead of following Jesus' ways. So we must turn from the individualistic kind of consuming, asking ourselves, you know, instead of what is this church going to give to me? And, I, and I, 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 I guess I encourage you, if you're here visiting and you're like, is this going to be a new church for me? Is this where I'm going to kind of root my life while I'm living here in San Diego? Or, or am I going to, and neighbors, we're casting vision that we want your grandkids to be raised here. We want legacy vision. We want generational churches like the old school churches used to do it back in the day. We should be asking the question when we approach anything with, in, in community, why is God calling me here and how can, I com- continue, how can I commit and contribute to this community? What service and gifts and joy can I bring into this family? That's next week. Major details on how do we give? What is our commitment? What does it provide for the community? We also, loved ones, we need to turn from the pollution of our news feeds and the propaganda and the conspiracy theories the political talking heads, the cult of personality, to the scriptures more deeply, to Jesus. I had to get really honest about this, just like back in October. In the name of being aware, in the name of being informed, I was like trying to listen to all the podcasts. So I'd like, I'd like go full Ben Shapiro, like way right over here. And Ben, he's a really smart guy. Then I'd go like far left, Rachel Maddow over here. And then I'd get like far, like way alt right. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> then I'd get like way... And then I get, like, way all left over here, like, crazy shenanigans from, like, you know, I don't know, from places. And, and what happened to me, it was in every political conversation, not even political conversations, I found myself so shaped by those different voices that I was all ramped up. Normally, I'm a pretty laid-back guy. I'm pretty chill. People would start talking, and I'd be like, I'd have Ben in my head, Shapiro. And I'd be like, Bruh! And then somebody would be talking and they would be, on the, they would be a little bit more to the right. And I would have some left idea in my head. And I would just be like, Rah! and I felt myself ramped up and angry. And I realized because my wife took me aside at one point. She's like, you got to stop listening to those podcasts. And I did. Do you know how much time we can give to listening to the Bible instead of podcasts? Listen to the Sermon, uh, sermon on the Mount on repeat for an hour the hour that you would spend listening to the podcast, listen to the Sermon on the Mount on repeat in different translations and watch the gentleness of your soul take shape. Watch yourself become a mediator, a person of peace, a kind, healing balm to the wounds of this fracturing world. Friends, 
there is this introspection and commitment that is needed. It's a commitment to a community that exists in the midst of the tribes, all the tribes, as a different way of being human. That's what Christianity is. It's not left or right. It's not conservative or progressive. It is a different way categorically of being human. We abide by the commands of the perfect human king, Jesus. We don't compromise And we don't compromise for the sake of our own souls, and we don't compromise for the sake of our society, the society that we truly, genuinely love. That is the way the church becomes a healing, hope-giving community. Individualism says, I am my own authority. Tribalism says, we are the authority. The church lives under Jesus, who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Radical individualism says, I define truth. Tribalism wars against any other form of opposing truth, and the church declares Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is the truth. Radical individualism uses others for our own good. Tribalism just does not even allow for the existence of others, and the church serves the other through sacrifice and generosity, cross-carrying and gentleness as empowered by the Holy Spirit in following the ways of a king who was crucified for the well-being of his enemies. Now, I, I get it. You're, if you're thinking through this, you're saying, Dan, the church is just another tribe of individuals who believe certain things about the world. How is that any different? You are absolutely right. There's no way around it. The end goal of God in creation is to rescue people from their individualized, self-defined beliefs that form their tribes by believing in Jesus trusting in his words, and joining his tribe, period. That is God's goal. This is what Jesus meant when he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Of all Republicans, make disciples. Of all Democrats, make disciples. Of all uber-conservatives, uber-progressives, make disciples. Black, white, Mexican, Hispanic, Asian, make disciples. Rich, poor, Make disciples, draw them out of their tribes into the true humanity under Jesus. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm always with you to the very end of the age. His presence with his community, a new tribe of humanity, as a healing and hope-giving balm to a fractured and broken world. We are no less than that. This, this tiny little sliver here on this blacktop joined with the whole global church throughout history. This is what God is doing. God is uniting all tribes into one tribe under the banner of his love. And that is a beautiful and good thing to give our lives to. This is really, as a Christian, the only thing to give our lives to. In whatever way we can. This is what Jesus prayed for in John 17. This is why Jesus died and rose again. And this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. I'm done. I'm going to bring Shua up. And we're going to just pray today. Shua is going to lead us in song and in prayer and in communion. I think I would be remiss to not offer you the challenge. You know, we pray every Sunday. Pre-gathering prayers at 9.15. And of late... Over the past three weeks, I think one of us at least has prayed at least once, maybe today breakthrough will happen. 
Maybe today, what we've read about in the New Testament, what we've seen through the history of the church, where God's spirit just moves, and people all of a sudden come awake and they say, you know what? I've been caught up. I've, I've lived my Christian life as an individual and not even realized there's this community around me that is my family. Or maybe today, for myself, like me, you have to repent of that hostile tribalism that's like gotten in, it's like in your head. And you just have to be humble about that. You have to recognize and be humble and realize. And I know how this works because I get triggered just as well. Well, you got this and you got that and you need to make sure that happens and we're going to lose that and this is that. Gonna, blah, blah. No, Jesus is on the throne. Our foundation is the scriptures. And if we can stay in the scriptures and then still handle the podcast without getting crazy or getting mean or getting divisive, then go for it. I, I couldn't do it. That's my confession. And so maybe today there's a moment where it's like, you know what? Is King Jesus on the throne completely? Am I at rest in him? And I, I do believe that God, the Holy Spirit, if you, won't, if you won't try to control, if you won't be afraid, he wants to plant you into a family. Can you imagine, can you imagine like raising your kids here? For those of you that aren't married yet. Can you imagine the babies that are back there raising their kids in a community that you raised them in? This is the way the church has existed, and American Christianity has just destroyed it, just made it this weird business, peddling gospel goods to a market niche of people that are just upset and lonely and anxious. What if we're actually a family that never leaves each other, and we commit to one another, and we raise our kids together, and we live in these little enclaves formed by our weird beliefs about sexuality and politics and past serving and passively allowing the world to just kind of do what it does and taking in the refugees. of the, What if that's what God's doing? I guess my commission to you is to, to ask him if that's what he's doing. And, and you know, maybe, maybe he's doing that in you in a different place. But if you're a Christian, I know he's doing that. He's calling you to commit to a community somewhere. And you can't drift along anymore. It's so weird. I, I'm almost done. I'm 44. My oldest is going to be 18 in a month. I'm like legit dad now. Like I can, I tell legit dad jokes. I, do, I got the whole dad thing. And when I look at this generation of Christians that are coming, you, you are at a fork in the road. I'm, I don't know how to tell you this without sounding so dad-ish, but you are at a fork in the road. You have an opportunity to make choices in your life about the church, about Jesus, about who you are in following him that will literally bring heaven to earth or you will abandon this world for its lies. And you don't have to. Choose this day who you will serve. The father came to Abraham and covenanted with him. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to make nations from you. I'm going to draw kings from your line. All you need to do is walk faithfully before me and be blameless. I am pleading with you to do that. I'm asking that you would open your hearts to feel the pain of this world as Jesus does 
and then say, Jesus, I send myself in your power to be a sacrifice for this world because you were sacrificed for me. I give myself to this community. I give myself to a life that is beyond myself. And I promise you, this isn't pop psych therapy or anything like that. You will find yourself. You will be fulfilled doing that. Lose yourself to find yourself. Father, as we come now to sing, I feel so emotional right now. I feel such an angst, such an urgency. I can feel and see, Lord, the opportunities for this younger generation of the church to chart a course of radical Christianity, of practicing the way of Jesus, of being a people of peace, a non-anxious presence, people of healing, people of joy, a people of great power, a people of service. Pray as we prayed even this morning, Holy Spirit, we give ourselves to you, we come to you, and we hold nothing back. We confess, I confess, Lord, my radical individualism, it just, it corrupts my love for others, corrupts the way I view the church, corrupts the way I view other humans. And I repent today, Jesus, the hostile tribalism, just so many voices, this cacophony, this this crowd of raging voices and messages all around us. Please center us in the scriptures. Please center us in Jesus and the gospel and the resurrection and a kingdom that is not of this world. And may we be the pioneers living on that frontier edge, the thin space between heaven and earth. And so call us today, Holy Spirit. Call us today. Strengthen us with our brothers and sisters, many of whom committed themselves to suffering and to death because they had a treasure stored up for themselves that could not be destroyed. Give us that eternal vision. I pray that you would give the young people here who are newly married or single still and wanting to get married, or even the singles, Lord, all of us, give us a generational vision that our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids would carry on the line of the church, knit together and interdependent upon one another. A new way of being human, but the original way of being human. We leave all of this in your hands. In Jesus' name.